How was everybody? Good, 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 good. Glad you guys are here. Um, we are in the book of Acts. If you've been coming to the church for a while, we've been in this book for, for quite a while. We're actually in the 21st chapter of it. If you're new to the church, this is the fifth book of the New Testament. And this is what we do. We take a book of the Bible and we just work through it as long as it takes us to work through it. And we've been in this one for a while. I don't even know how many months now, quite a few months. And um, we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit. We'll actually cover some stuff during chapter 21, um, bring up some, some old characters that we talked about months and months and months ago, but I'll remind you of who they are and kind of what their significance is. But if you're new, let me catch up to speed a little bit. Last chapter, um, we've been following a guy named Paul for quite some time. Paul and his team have been in what is modern-day Turkey. They refer to it as, as Asia Minor. So if you hear me say that today, I'll show you a map, but it's in western Turkey. And this guy, Paul, has been hanging out in western Turkey. He's been hanging out in northern and southern Greece, starting churches, telling all these different people outside of the Jewish world. There are Jews in those areas, but outside of Israel, outside of the Middle East, he is sharing the gospel with all kinds of non-Jewish people and Jewish people, starting churches and going back and revisiting them and strengthening them and staying in some places even for years. One of the places where he spent a lot of time was in a church uh, in a city called Ephesus. And if you weren't here last week, we see kind of this heartbreaking kind of finale of Paul with these leaders from the church of Ephesus, and they've traveled down to the coast together, and Paul's about to hop on a ship and go back to Israel that we're going to talk about today. And there's this kind of heartbreaking uh, uh, part where he is leaving, and these people are hugging him and kissing him and telling him how much they're going to miss him and love him, and it's going to be the last time that he's going to see these people, right? Because as we're kind of coming to the end of the book of Acts, we're kind of coming to the end of Paul's life but I'm not going to get into that yet, right? We're getting into that a little bit later in the coming weeks. But we talked about, at the end of chapter 20, essentially Paul is kind of handing the torch over to these people that he's been training, people that he had influence over, so they can take the light and they can go back to their cities and spread the gospel and lead more people to Christ. And we talked about last week, all of us will do that in some form. Every single one of you in this room have, has influence over somebody, or you will have influence over someone. And so all of us in this room are going to be put in a position to where we're going to have to kind of hand off the baton, right? Pass it on to someone else so they will take it further than what we've done. Now, we talked about last week, the only way for us to do that well is we must be full of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the example, a glass can only spill what it contains, right? So we not only have to be full, we have to be overflowing with the Holy Spirit, and that fills other people up, and we pass the light on, right? This week, we're going to talk about this, and we're going to do all of chapter 21. It won't take us that long. We're going to talk about that God has a plan. He's a plan for every single one of you, right? Every single one of you in this room. God has a path he wants you to walk down. Now, if we're to do that, because I feel like we're an honest church, we need to be honest with each other, sometimes walking the path that God wants us to walk is not easy. Sometimes we don't even like it, right? So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. He has a path, but in order to walk that path, it takes a lot of guts, a lot of courage, a lot of sacrifice, okay? And we're going to get into that a little bit today. Now, you should have a notes handout in front of you. It has everything that's going to be on the screens. It will be right in front of you. Um, I know everyone has downloaded the Experience Community app. It's the talk of just, you know, like the app world. 
not really. We have like 10 reviews on, on, uh, on Apple, whatever. But anyways, uh, if you haven't downloaded that yet, though, it's a really fantastic app. It has all the notes. If you click on service and then sermon notes, everything is there. The scripture, very, very handy way to follow along. So on a serious note, you should download that. It's very, very handy. If you have a Bible, we're in the fifth book of the New Testament. We're in the 21st chapter. I'm going to read a little bit. We will break it down and um, we'll pick up some, some practical stuff today. And I hope I encourage you a little bit today. Or I guess, you know, more, I hope the word encourages you a little bit today. Okay, let me pray and we'll move forward, all right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I want to thank you, God, for everyone who has come out this morning, Lord. God, even though the weather is kind of nasty and icky, Lord, that, that people would come out and we could sit and we can worship together and we can break open your word. And, and God, I pray, Lord, that we're encouraged by it today. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone in this room who's not a believer, that they also feel some encouragement and that they feel some strength by the word that is given today. And maybe that will open up their mind a little bit and cause them to look more towards uh, uh, what this Christian faith is all about. For all the believers in this room who may be discouraged, God, I pray, Lord, that you lift them up, that you strengthen us today. God, we pray that you strengthen every church in our community. We pray, God, that you uh, strengthen every nonprofit in our community. And Lord, help us, God, to be the best we can be, that, that we glorify and honor you in all we do. Lord, we love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you got a Bible, we're in chapter 21. I'm gonna read a little bit, we will rock and roll. Uh, and we'll see what happens, okay? All right. After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail for Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there, Patera. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and arrived in Tyre, since the ship was going to unload cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days, Though the Spirit, or through the Spirit, I'm sorry, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey while all of them with their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. This man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, look at how Luke writes this. When I said at the end of chapter 20, it was kind of a gut-wrenching you know, farewell, he says we had to tear ourselves away from those people. Like, they were holding on to us, they loved us, we had to tear ourselves away. So Paul and his team hop on a ship, they're going to leave Asia Minor, they're going to travel across the Mediterranean, they're going to head north of Israel into an area called Phoenicia. When they get to that area, they're going to be stuck for about a week because of the schedule of the ship, right? They're going to be stuck there for about a week, so while they're there, they're going to meet up with some Christians in the area. Now, if you've never been here I like maps. If you've been here, you're probably sick of this map. So anyways, this is the area where we're going to start off today in southern, the western side of Turkey on the coast, to the southern coast. Paul and his team are going to hop on a ship, they're going to sail across the Mediterranean, and we're going to end up back in kind of the general vicinity of Israel, okay? This is where we're hanging out 
today, all right? Just so you know where we are geographically. Now, look at something neat that kind of pops up. Paul and his team meet with these people in Tyre. They go to the beach and they pray together. They leave this area. They go to another area where it says they hung out with the brothers and sisters, other Christians in that area, and they actually stayed at their home. Now, one of the neat things that comes up in this lesson is the family dynamic of Christianity. Now, I don't know if this resonates for anyone else in this room. I have a nuclear family. I have a mom, dad, and a sister. The only person I have any kind of relationship with is my mother, who's probably watching right now from St. Louis. We talk about every week. We stay in touch. We'll text or we'll call each other, and we have a very, very good relationship. I don't have a good relationship with my sister, and I don't have any kind of relationship with my father. So I'm not trying to get you to, you know, feel sorry for me. I don't, you know, it's fine. I'm, I'm making it. But what I'm saying is the church has become my family. And so for a lot of you in this room that don't have flesh and blood relatives, what's neat about this is God kind of fills in deep relationships. So if you don't have a father, God sends us father figures and mother figures and brothers and sisters and people that quite frankly, the relationship goes even deeper than flesh and blood. And that's a very beautiful thing about the Christian faith, this family dynamic that we have. We also catch up with an old friend, if you will, a guy named Philip. Now, if you've been with us through the book of Acts, we talked about Philip literally months and months and months ago. In the timeline of the book of Acts, about 20 years has passed since we have heard of Luke in the timeline of Acts. Now, I'm sorry that Luke wrote about Philip in Acts. Now, Philip's ministry began as a community service guy. When the church was just beginning, the disciples chose seven people to do community service work, to feed the poor, to help the widows, to help the orphans. Philip was one of those guys. He's most famous for an interaction he had with an Ethiopian man in Acts chapter 8, where he baptizes him out as this guy is leaving Jerusalem, and Philip goes and baptizes this man. So we've heard of this guy before, very, very famous individual. Now, what's neat about Philip is he had four daughters. I don't, if you have four daughters, you probably don't think that's very neat, but I have two and that's enough for me. But anyways, he had four daughters that were not married yet and all four of these girls had the gift of prophecy. Now we talk about prophecy sometimes as we should. It's one of the gifts of the spirit. Paul held this gift in very high regard. We talk about the gift of prophecy, but a lot of people don't know what that means. Here's what it simply means. If one has the gift of prophecy, they've been given a supernatural ability to be able to explain the scripture of God and the will of God to people. They basically steer people in the right direction. Now, on some occasions, not as much today as it was in Old Testament times, prophecy also means to foretell the future. As we're going to see in the next part that we read, that some people have this gift and it's to tell very direct things that are going to happen in the future. Now, I'm not trying to grind an ax here or upset anyone or be political or anything like that, but it's interesting to note that these were women. Now, whenever people say that women have no place in the church, they're not allowed to speak or lead or do anything like that, there are so many instances just in the book of Acts that talk about women who have giftings and the opportunity to lead and influence Christianity. Here we see four young women who are doing it. Luke, in, one of his, in, in his gospel, the gospel of Luke, talks about a woman named Anna that does this. Peter mentions it in Acts chapter 2. That's not even talking about the other women we've already covered in the last couple of months who are influential in the formation of the Christian movement. So 
I just see it as that women have a huge place in Christianity, and we're seeing this again and again, okay? So after we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, he took Paul's belt, tied it over his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul replied, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were going to stay. So, another blast from the past. If you've been with us, we've talked about this guy Agabus before too. In chapter 11, he showed up and predicted a famine. He gave a prophecy about a famine, which from historical Roman records, we know that this famine took place. We meet up with him again after he traveled to Philip's house to give Paul a very dark prophecy about his future, his future. So Agabus takes his belt. Hey, let me see your belt, Paul. Takes his belt, wraps it around his wrists and his ankles and says, in this way, you're going to be persecuted. Things are going to happen to you. And what we're going to see from here on out about Paul, as we draw closer to the end of Paul's life, we're going to see a lot of similarities between him and how Jesus was persecuted and accused and murdered. Okay, we're going to see a lot of similarities, all right? So moving on. Fear sometimes overcomes us and kind of uh, 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 makes us have a perspective we shouldn't have. So though the people around Paul knew that Agabus was gifted by God to be a prophet, once they heard the prophecy, they begged Paul not to go. Don't do it, right? Even though it was prophesied, don't do it. Now this frustrated Paul. And we have to be gracious here. They're humans, right? Even though they knew the plan of God, they didn't like the plan of God. And so they said, don't do this. But Paul was frustrated by this. He said, look, you're breaking my heart. You're putting me in a tough position. This is going to cause doubt. This is going to cause division between us. If you don't support this prophecy, it's going to stop me from moving forward. So it kind of upset him a little bit. And he said, don't do this. So they finally relented. He said, well, let the Lord's, let the Lord's will be done. So Paul could not be persuaded. And he said something extremely interesting. Very foreign to how we have to think as Christians in North America, where we have so many comforts, right? So we don't come to church when it's nice outside. We don't come to church when it rains too much. We don't come to church when there's, you know, like footballs on, or we don't come to church, you know, if, I don't know, for all these reasons why we make excuses. And I don't mean to offend anyone at home who's watching right now, but Paul says, not only am I willing to go to prison for Jesus, I'm willing to die for him. Right? We're not even willing to like get out of bed if we overslept too long to come to church. But like Paul puts us in this frame of mind or we show, he shows his frame of mind where he says, I'm willing to give up everything for Christ. Now we are so spoiled in our culture to where we've never had to ask ourselves this question. But guys, I'm not trying to be like the doom and gloom guy. If the book of Revelation is right, which I believe it is, 
One day we will have to be in the mindset where we may have to put our life on the line for our faith. And if we're not willing to do that now with the comforts that we have, we're not gonna be able to do it later when it gets extremely difficult. Oddly enough, Paul was on his way to Israel to celebrate Pentecost. The only way to have the mindset in the heart that I will die for my faith is if we are full of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And he was on his way to a celebration to celebrate and commemorate the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Ironic, right? So don't Google this if you don't know how Paul dies. Don't do that. You're going to ruin it for yourself, right? We'll walk through it. So someone at the, at the seven o'clock last night was just like, oh my gosh, I Googled Paul and all this. And I was like, man, you just ruined it, right? So, so let's walk through it together. But the trip is going to take a turn here. I'll let you in on a little bit of a, of a secret. Paul never makes it back home. He never gets back to Antioch. Earlier on in the book of Acts, he said, I must visit Rome. Paul's gonna visit Rome, but not in the way he thought he was going to visit Rome. He's gonna be delivered to Rome, right, as a prisoner, and he's not gonna go the way that he wants to go. Now, Luke is gonna start sharing with us how all this takes place, okay? So when we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done, done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what's to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourselves along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, let me explain to you what's going on here. So Paul gets back to Jerusalem, which is the mothership, right? This is the biggest, highest concentration of Christians in the world. The church in Jerusalem was somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 50,000 people. That was a mega church. It was a big church. Paul arrives and he's greeted warmly, right? And he's greeted by the leader of the church, which is James, the brother of Jesus. After the greetings, hey, good to see you, good to see you, love you, love you too, man. Hey, let me tell you about all the awesome things that we've gotten to do the last couple of years. Paul tells him. Not only does he tell him, he gives them a bunch of money. He says, hey, all the Christians in these other areas, they've collected this money for you to give to the poor people in Jerusalem. That's pretty cool, right? So he gives them this, tells them all the things that are happening. Now, look what happens here. If you think competition between church is a new thing, it's not. So you have these churches in other countries, in other areas, in other cultures. You have the mothership, Jerusalem, here. So after Paul blesses them with money after he shares about all the awesome things that have happened in other parts of the world, the Jewish Christians go, man, that's really great that your church has grown. 
our church is bigger, right? We have thousands and thousands of people that have become Christians, Jewish people here in Jerusalem who've become Christians. Not only that, they go, they are zealous for the law. Here's what they're essentially saying. Not only do we have a bigger church than you, we do things a lot more legalistically than you, right? We love God more because we do more. That's essentially what they're saying. So not only are they being competitive, they're being competitive about things that don't matter. Our building is a lot fancier than your building. Look how much better Christians we are, right? We, are, we, wear, we wear much nicer clothes than you guys. Our pastor even wears shoes, right? Like, so arguing about things that have nothing to do with salvation. So look at what we still do. We still compete with each other, and we compete with each other, not over like how many baptisms we have, but how great our live stream is, or how big and audacious our buildings are, how many stupid programs we have, things that in the grand scheme of it all don't matter. That's what we still do today. We argue over man-made things that God could really not give a rip about, and that's been going on for literally thousands of years. Not only that, the church had a lot of gossip in it. So many of the Christians in Israel had heard that Paul was anti-Moses. Not only was Paul not anti-Moses, Paul would have had multiple degrees in studying the Torah. He knew the Torah backwards and forwards. That's the first five books of the Bible. He was all about some Moses, loved Moses. So Paul wasn't against Moses. What Paul did though is Paul taught grace through faith that we are saved by grace through faith, which is essentially the thesis of the first four books of the Bible, of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus was teaching, it's not your sacrifice that saves you, it is my sacrifice that saves you. Now, here's the thing. If you feel conviction about Old Testament laws, if you are in this room and you feel the need to not eat pork or shellfish or to observe all the different festivals, there is nothing wrong with that. That is your conviction, but you are not allowed to shove that conviction on me because I'm not saved by those things. I'm saved by my relationship with Jesus Christ. So is it okay for you to do those things? Sure, it's okay if you want to observe those things, but you cannot push that personal conviction on me because it's not a New Testament criteria for salvation, okay? So the elders wanted to clean up this mess, Paul rolls into town, meets with the church leadership. They're like, hey, we're really glad you're here, but like a lot of people don't like you. So we have to clean this up, right? We got to take care of this little rift between us. So in order to fix the problem, what they decided to do is they were like, hey, Paul, we got some guys who are going through a purification ceremony like the good Jewish Christians do. Why don't you join them and why don't you pay for their purification ceremony and then everyone will think that you're a decent guy? How about that? And so here's the thing, guys, and, and I hope this makes sense. Sometimes we do things and Paul's going to do it because he cares about the greater good of the, of the Christian faith. Here's the thing. We need to care less about what Christian culture says and more about what's important to Jesus. So just because... I hope you guys are awake today. Is the rain like too loud or something? I didn't know if, oh, I didn't, okay, all right. Anyways, we need to care less about what church culture says. Well, they don't do it like that in church. I don't care about how they do it in church. I care about how Christ wants us to do it, right? I wanna be biblically based, not church culture based. 
I don't want to look like every other church just because I don't want to fit in or something like that. I want to be what Jesus wants us to be. So we all need to be more concerned about what Christ thinks about us, not about what the other believers around us think about us, right? Hey, look, a hand clap. Look at that. All right. Someone's awake back in this corner. Awesome. So Paul jumped through the hoops. Paul looked at this stuff. He knew he didn't have to do it, but for the greater good of the community, he said, I'll do it. I'll go through this purification ceremony to show the people that I, I, I honor the first five books of the Bible. Now, this wouldn't have violated Paul's personal convictions. He knew he didn't have to do these things to be clean, but Paul wanted to respect them. It's kind of like any of you who've ever been on one of our... If you're a woman and you go to El Salvador with our church, they make all the women wear skirts. Now, the women in the go from this church there, we know we don't have to, the, the women don't have to wear skirts, but we do that to respect their culture. We do that to respect that church's convictions. We don't have to do it, but we do it for the greater good of the faith. We do it for the greater good of the community. That's what Paul was doing. Now, obviously that didn't work because my next slide is called riot number six, okay? <laughs> so the next day, Paul took the men, having purified himself with them, and entered into the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, that's Turkey, saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was stirred, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. As they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So obviously the PR stunt didn't work, right? So when the purification days were ending... There were some Jews from Turkey that had traveled to Israel for the day of Pentecost, for the celebration of Pentecost. They saw Paul, and it says that they stirred up the crowd. They seized him. They said, this is the guy that teaches against the Jews. He teaches against the law, and he teaches against the temple. Now, here's what we learn. They're all Christians, right? We see that an allegiance to religious practice over relationship will always cause division amongst Christians. If we care more about being a good Baptist than we care about being a good Christian, that will always divide the body. If we care more about being a Catholic or more about being a good Lutheran or more about being a good Pentecostal or whatever, they, I'm not saying anything against those denominations. I love those denominations and those groups. But if it becomes more important to have the identity of your denomination than it does to have the identity of living like Christ, we will always be divided. We will always be divided, okay? And so not only that, the mob accused Paul of, of taking a Gentile into the temple. 
they saw him with a guy from Ephesus and they assumed. There, there was an assumption. There wasn't even proof. He didn't do it, but they just assumed he did. And this incited riot number six that started because of Paul, right? Not that he did anything wrong, but six riots now. If I was Paul, I would tell everyone that, right? How many riots were started in your name? Me, six, right? I would just be proud of that. Everywhere Paul went, essentially, they would riot about this. So here's what they do. They drag him out of the temple because they don't want to desecrate the temple. Listen, they were going to kill him, but they just didn't want to do it in church. So we don't want to desecrate the church by doing something unholy there. So let's take him outside of the church and let's kill him there. And it's interesting because we look at that and we're like, that is ridiculous. And we kind of do things like this all the time. I'll receive an email about a word that I say in church, typically to prove a point. And it's funny, I'll say a word in church and someone will complain and I'm like, man, you let your kids listen to music that say things much worse than what I said from this platform, but as long as we don't do it in church, it's okay. So what we've done in Southern Christianity, yeah, I'll pick on us a little bit today, is we think just because we go to church on the weekends that we're holy. And so we look a certain way in church, right? Not in this church, of course, but in a lot of churches. We put on our best and we put on a plastic smile and we walk around and make sure that we take some pictures so everyone knows that we're at church. And we think that's the whole of our Christianity. And then when we leave the church, we condone violence and racism and sexism and all kinds of evil and live like hell throughout the week because we have lied to ourselves and convinced ourselves that we can compartmentalize our faith. Well, that's my Christian life over there. And then I got my secular life over there. It's not a sin to get drunk when you turn 21, right? It's your 21st birthday. It's not a sin to do these things on your bachelor party. It's your bachelor party. Because when those things happen, God goes, I don't see you, right? You're 21 today. And being drunk is always a sin. I don't care if it's on your 21st birthday or your bachelor party or whatever the occasion may be. It's wrong all the time. It's wrong to cheat on your wife all the time. I don't care if you're 18 zip codes away. It is still wrong because God sees you. He knows your heart and you're either for him or you're against him. Jesus said you can't follow two masters. You're either going to love one or you're going to hate the other. We cannot have these two separate lives, the non-Christian and Christian life. You're either in this or you're not in this. You can't even be 99% in this. Jesus wants all of you or nothing, right? You're either in or you're out. And so as the mob was beating Paul to near death, a Roman Kiliarch, that's a man who's over a thousand people, we know it was a Kiliarch because he called the centurions. Centurions were over a hundred, Kiliarchs were over 10 100-person groups, so 1,000 people, okay? He rushes in. He uses Roman force to shut this mob down. Listen, the mob were Christians. He comes in and shuts down the Christian mob. The non-believers had to calm down the Christian mob. Now, again, that sounds crazy, but we sometimes can act like mobs, Man, you know, it's you remember a couple years ago with the red cups at Starbucks? We about lost our minds, didn't we? That non-Christian organization didn't put Merry Christmas on their cup because they're not a Christian organization. They don't have to act like Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
And so we hear that someone from Home Depot went to a gay pride parade and we're like, oh, I'm not buying tools anymore, right? We hear from someone at Procter & Gamble is not a believer, I'm not brushing my teeth anymore. And we lose our minds. And we go crazy and we act like a mob. And you know how hypocritical we are? Then we look at the gay community when they pick it against Chick-fil-A and then we say, how dare they? Listen, now I'm not, I'm fine with Chick-fil-A. I also drink Starbucks. And there's probably people around you that also drink Starbucks and may even work there. So here's the thing. Instead of taking on a mob mentality and picketing everyone that believes differently than you, why don't you just act like Jesus and see if that makes a change? All right. I'm hopping on an airplane right after this, so... I'm gone for a week. I'm going to be oblivious to all your emails. So I'm just, it's all coming out. <laughs> then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. That's not with the wrapper. That's literally two chains. He asked who he was and what he, <laughs> and what he had done. <laughs> Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mass of people followed were yelling, get rid of him. As he was about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, you know how to speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, no, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had been given permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. There was a great hush and he addressed them in Aramaic. Look at how intelligent of a man Paul is. Looks at this Roman centurion, or I'm sorry, Achilliarch, addresses him in his native tongue, then turns to this mob, changes, and addresses them in their native tongue. So this Roman Achilliarch, Claudius, he arrested Paul because Paul was the focus of the riot. He didn't know if he had done anything wrong. He just wanted to get him out of there and stop this riot. So he bound him by his, uh, his uh, hands and his feet. So the prophecy of Agabus is starting to come true. Because the crowd was so violent, they took him to the barracks, and as he was being led away, look at how this looks like Jesus, right? They started yelling, get rid of him, which meant kill him. Kill him, kill him, kill him. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Very, very similar. Also similar to Jesus, Paul is in front of the most powerful man in this area, right? He's standing in front of this Kiliarch, and he gets the chance to speak to him. Paul looks at him and speaks in Greek, and the commander's like, whoa, I didn't know he spoke Greek. And this is interesting. This is a history lesson. The commander assumed that Paul was this Egyptian terrorist that had come into Jerusalem years ago and led this huge army of people in this revolt. And he, he thought that this guy had come back, but he spoke Greek. So he goes, oh, wow, you're not that Egyptian terrorist. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. I'm a Jew. Not only am I a Jew, I'm a citizen of a very important city, which means he was a Roman citizen. Now, Roman citizenship got you a lot of freedom. 
Freedom that very few people on earth had unless you were a Roman citizen. Now, we're going to learn next chapter that Paul escapes death because of his Roman citizenry. But at this point, he doesn't even bring it up. So he speaks to the commander in Greek, turns to the mob, speaks to them in Aramaic, and he has not let the cat out of the bag yet that his rights have been violated. Why? The reason he hasn't done that yet is Paul knows that God has a plan. Paul knows that God has him here for a reason. In the middle of this, as he's bloodied and beat up and standing in front of this mob, Paul knows that God is in control. He knows that there is a plan and it was going to take tremendous courage in that moment to make sure that he stayed on God's plan. Now, let me go back to that in a second. Now, here's the thing about chapter 21 of Acts. There are some following Jesus Christ 101s in this chapter. Now, in case you forgot them or you missed them, let's go back and look at them. The first one is this. To follow Jesus Christ means there is no longer an excuse to be a loner. What that means is you may have no flesh and blood family on planet Earth, but if you become a Christian, you have tons of brothers and sisters. You have father figures, mother figures, you have all kinds of support and people around you. You have to reach out to that. You have to be involved. The community is a huge part of what it means to be a Christian. I could go on and on on this. There are some of you in this room that if it weren't for your Christian family, you'd be utterly lost, you would be completely broke, you would be completely off track. And it is our brothers and sisters that have helped us and stepped up for us very, very important, okay? Another thing about our Christian faith is this. We talked about this, that it's not just that we're willing to die for our faith, but we must be willing to live for our faith. What does that mean? If you stick a gun to my head and you ask me, will you die for your faith? I know that I'm about to meet my maker, so I want to be on a good side of my maker, right? Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I would die for him. To me, it's easier to die than it is to live for Jesus every Tuesday, to live for Jesus every Monday, right? To live for Jesus when I'm broke or I don't know where my next you know, meal's gonna come from or when I lose a job or when my family is dysfunctional. It's a lot harder to live for Christ every day. So not only will we die for him, we must be willing to live for Jesus all the time. We also need to remember that being a Christian is about a relationship with God and a relationship to others. It is not about religious practice. Now, this is not me just beating up on Lutherans or Catholics or Baptists or anyone like that. There are some religious practices that are not a bad thing, but we need to know that those things do not save us. And so I had a great grandmother from Austria. I believe she was from Austria. And I have her rosary in my office. It's probably about 100 years old, this rosary. If you go into my office, it's hanging from a lamp. The beads on this rosary have been rubbed down to virtually nothing because my great-grandmother, a devout Lutheran, would pray every single day over the rosary, every single day. Now, she doesn't have to do that to be saved, but it's not a bad thing that she took every single day and prayed that rosary all the way through. Nothing wrong with that. Now, are we saved by that? No, but it's a religious practice. that It's not an unhealthy thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But we are saved by grace through faith when we have a relationship with Jesus. That's how we're saved. And it's important to know that. We also need to know that following Jesus is all the time. Now, I know there's going to be times when you're tired. 
I know there's going to be times when you backslide or slip out a little bit. Maybe you sit down in the middle of the race. I know that. I know that those things are going to happen. But we need to make sure that we get up. We need to make sure that we repent. We need to make sure that we get back on track. It is a 24-7 thing. It's just like being a parent. It's just like being a, a spouse. You can't pause marriage or pause being a father. You can't like run off and spend a week doing whatever the heck you want because it tears down relationships. So when we become a believer, are there going to be hard times? Of course there are. But it's a 24-7 commitment. We cannot compartmentalize our faith because we want to get drunk this night because of this event, or we want to sleep with this person, and we'll repent for it later, or we just want to look at this porn because it helps us unwind, or whatever the case may be. We cannot compartmentalize our faith. It's either in or it's out. We're either for him or we're against him. We either serve him as our master or we serve something else. It has to be one or the other. The last thing is this, and I hope you get encouraged through this. Every single one of you has a plan that God has set out for you. Now, I get sick of hearing this. Sometimes people come up to me and they're just like, man, you know, my, my, my wife cheated on me and left and my kids hate me and I just lost my job and I guess this is just God's plan. And I'm like, that's not God's plan. Just because God has a plan for you doesn't mean that every single one of you are going to be living within that plan. What do you mean, Corey? The Bible even says it is God's desire, it is God's will that none should perish. Some people are going to perish. Some people are going to go to hell. So God's perfect will and God's plan for our lives don't always come to fruition. That's not God's fault. It's our fault. But God has a great plan, and I'll prove it in a second, to all of you in this room. Now, if we're going to follow in that plan, if we're going to live the way God wants us to live and follow the road that God wants us to follow, it's going to take a tremendous amount of trust. If we're just being honest in this room, guys, every single one of you, and if you haven't yet, I give you my word, you will. Every single one of us in this room will look in the mirror and say, are we freaking crazy for believing this? Every single one of you will look in the mirror and say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? I know you have a plan. I don't see it. But we have to trust him. We have to trust him. It takes tremendous amounts of courage. We have to be brave through this. Sometimes God shows us step one, two, three, and we're on three reaching out our leg, saying, God, I hope you put something there. Okay. But over time, we learn that God always orders our steps, as the Bible says. Not only does it take trust, not only does it take bravery, unfortunately, sometimes it takes extreme sacrifice. Sometimes it takes God cutting off things, and it's painful. Sometimes we have to lay things aside. Sometimes there are relationships we need to get out of. Sometimes there are things that we need to sell. Think of the rich young ruler who walked up and says, Jesus, I've done everything that the law tells me to do. What now? And Jesus, knowing the man's heart, this isn't a blanket statement for all of us, but he knew that man's heart. He said, now sell everything and follow me. And it says that the man walked away sad because he didn't want to sacrifice that. All of us have something that is hard for us to lay down, but we can only walk the road that Christ wants us to walk if we are willing to give it up for him. Now, if we're being honest, this is difficult. 
Now, let me show you how we go through this. Let me show you what's going to bring us to the other side of this fear and this doubt and this lack of trust. I think the reason why we have such a hard time with this is many of us are not convinced, we are not persuaded that God wants the best for us. Well, I guess this is just God's plan for me to have this disastrous lifestyle, for me to have this awful existence. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and he said this, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being, not for your disaster but to give you a future and a hope. What does the heavenly father want for you? He wants something great for you. And even if this entire life is you climbing a mountain until the day you drop dead or he comes back on a white horse, until, and, and you may be climbing that mountain until one of those things happens, but even if it's in the afterlife, God has this valley waiting for you this perfect oasis with everything you need, a paradise. Jesus looked at his followers and he said, in my father's house, there's a lot of rooms and all of you are invited. All of you that will come, all of you that the Lord our God shall call, you're welcome to come, plenty of room. It's gonna be beautiful. So even if this life is a drudgery until the day we die, if we will continue to trust the plan, if we will continue to walk the walk, if we will continue to let God go in front of us and lead us, the perfect heavenly father says, I have something for you. Hold on. I have something for you. Keep stepping forward. I have something for you. Trust me. Know that I'm a good father, a good dad. Some of you struggle with this because you never had a good dad. But the perfect heavenly father says, look, I know you can't see it yet, but take a step. There's firm foundation there. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. Some of you in this room, some of you in this room are in that position right now where you're saying, God, what the heck? What the heck? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where to go. I feel crazy right now. Listen, you may not feel it here, but I need you to know it right here. God loves you. And God doesn't want disastrous things for you. He says, I have a plan, and it's not a disastrous plan. It's a good plan. It's a plan with hope. It's a plan with a future. And you need to know that. Some of you right now are scared. And I'm not knocking you down for being scared. I've been scared. Many times I've been scared. But God is not, he, he, he has not failed me yet. And every time he tells me to take a step, man, I do, it with, I do it with trepidation sometimes. I do it with fear and trembling sometimes. But if Jesus says, take a step, okay. And I may not even see the next one, but he says, take a step again, okay. And you keep on walking. I wanna encourage some of you. If you feel like you're walking alone, you're not. Not only is God with you, but you have brothers and sisters sitting around you, that if you will reach out, there are people that will walk this road with you, who will help you, who will guide you. If you're throwing up your hands right now, if you're questioning if God has a plan, I tell you, he does. He does, and it's a good plan, but you gotta trust him. You gotta trust him. Would you bow your heads with me, please?
As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you're not a believer in here and if you feel like you've been banging your head up against the wall, I want to challenge and encourage you. Why don't you try something else? If you've been banging your head up against the wall, if you've come to a roadblock, you're here for a reason. If you're in this room and you are a Christian and maybe you have forgotten that your heavenly father is a good dad, he's a good father, he loves you, and he doesn't want bad things for you, he has good things for you. Maybe you've forgotten that. If you have forgotten that, let me encourage you to do one of two things. Come up here to the front and let someone pray with you. Bible says where any two or more are gathered in my name, I am in the middle of them. I'm with them. There's unity. It's interesting. The Bible also says that there's a cord of three strands. That with, with two of us, it's hard to break it. But when there's three of us, when there's me, you, and God in the mix, it's very strong. Let someone pray for you. We also have communion all the way around you, wherever you see a lamp. The communion reminds us that we serve a good father because he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish, will not die, but have everlasting life. That there's a future, there's a hope. There's something great for us. You can take that communion and you can remember. Lord Jesus, God, if there's anyone in this room who's struggling, if there's anyone in this room who's thrown their hands in the air and they have asked themselves, Am I crazy? If there's anyone in this room who has forgotten that you are not a broken father like some of us have experienced, but you are a perfect heavenly father, Lord, remind them. If there's anyone in this room who's in a place of confusion, give them clarity. Maybe even send them people in their lives, God, to help them. Lord, if there's any non-believers in this room who are struggling and they're hitting a wall, God, Lord, I pray that you give them an open mind and courage, Lord, to, to maybe look in this direction. Father, we love you. Pour your grace out on us, God, because we need it immensely. We thank you for everything you've done in our lives, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys very much. You're welcome to help yourself.